Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC, the Chautauqua Institution, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Hello and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. I'm Dan Malter, Chief Executive here and a proud member. Today's July 17th, and you're with a virtual City Club forum live from the studios of 90.3 WCPN IdeaStream. They're our public media partner. Big thanks to them. Cries to, quote, defund the police have increased steadily over the last several years, and the conversation has entered the mainstream in the last two months since George Floyd was killed by individuals who were, at the time, members of the Minneapolis police force. Throughout history, when police brutality and violence occurs, it has had a disproportionate impact on people of color. Black people are three times more likely to be killed by police than white people, according to research done recently. And as we've noted at other recent forums, the phrase defund the police can be confusing for a lot of people. Today, we'll talk about what it might actually mean in practice and how American society might evolve if we embrace different definitions of what constitutes police, policing, and public safety. Our City Club of Cleveland Friday Forum speaker today is Christy Lopez. She spent years from 2010 to 2017 at the U.S. Department of Justice investigating law enforcement agencies and crafting settlements to ensure constitutional policing. That's part of the work of the Civil Rights Division. She led the team that investigated the Ferguson Police Department and was a primary drafter of the Ferguson Report and a negotiator of the Ferguson Consent Decree. Today, she's a professor at Georgetown Law and co-leads Georgetown Law's program on innovative policing. As in every City Club forum, you can participate with your questions. Text them to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. And if you're on Twitter, please tweet them at the City Club. We will work them into the program. Professor Christy Lopez, welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to have you with us. Christy Lopez, how should we understand the phrase defund the police? I think we should understand it as a call to recognize that we've come to over-rely on policing to meet our public safety needs and that this over-reliance has been disastrous for some segments of our communities. So what does that, in, but in, what does it mean, what would it then mean to defund the police? Where would, how would we take care of everything that we ask police to do? So um, that de what defunding the police will look like is different in each community, but I think there are a few uh, principles you can use to guide you in that quest. Um, I think one way to think about it is that policing can falls into um, one of three buckets. Um, one is the kind of policing that um, we need police to do and we will continue to need police to do. Um, that might be a very small portion of the policing that's happening in a lot of places. Um, the second bucket is the things that police do that we don't, that no one should be doing. Um, and in that bucket, I would put things like policing for revenue, um, as we saw in Ferguson, um, and in many other places where up to 20 to 30 percent of a city's revenue can come from policing. Um, and policing decisions are made not for public safety reasons, but for revenue generation reasons. And then the third bucket are things that somebody should be doing, but the police probably aren't the best people 
to be doing those things. Um, and that might include everything from taking um, accident reports to responding to persons who are in a mental health crisis but are not being violent anyway, to family squabbles, to um, people who are uh, homeless. Um, lots, you know, in, in many places, upwards of 90% of what police do might be things that either no one should be doing or someone else should be doing. Upwards of 90%? Well, that's the number, that's the percentage that you often hear in some places of um, the, re, the police activity that's not actually responding to something that's a crime. And so if we think about police as doing crime prevention, there's a real question why 90% of what they're doing isn't crime prevention. So when you are in conversations with um, law enforcement agencies about these sorts of things and you bring up these issues, what do they say? It depends on the agency, it depends on the context. Um, it is sometimes, you know, officers have, one of the reasons I've come to think about this topic in this way is talking to police officers and agencies across the country for the past 20 years and hearing them tell me that one of the reasons they're seeing, they're having such problems in their community is that they're being asked to do too much. Um, everything, you know, many of the things I've been talking about, but, you know, they, they talk about how they've been asked to deal with all of society's problems, you know, the, the problems of homelessness, the problems of drug addiction, the problems of not enough housing and education and mental health care and medical care. Those create turmoil and trauma and uh, incidents that we then call on the police to handle, and it would be better for everyone, and the police recognize this as much or more than anyone else, if we could put the systems into place that would prevent those things from happening in the first place. You know, the, just the, the way you describe it, it seems very simple and straightforward. And yet um, we have these structures that um, that are so difficult to dismantle. Um, if it's if police departments believe that they're doing too much and um, are being asked to do too much and activists and advocates believe, as you do, that they're being asked to do too much. Why haven't we been able to in implement structural changes? I think in, um, in large part, it's, be, it's due to a failure of imagination. And it's in part because there's a lot of what I call bureaucratic momentum of what, once things start going in a particular direction, it's very hard for large systems to shift gears. And especially in policing, where there's been on the one hand, um, this sense that police are doing too much. On the other hand, quite frankly, a lot of fear-mongering um, by some in policing, many in police unions, um, some members of the public, some people in, some politicians, who um, it serves their interests to make people think that um, the biggest threat to our public safety is crime and that the only people that can protect us from that are heavily armed police officers. There's a lot of dynamics that really push are pushing that, have pushed that narrative. And um, when we get afraid, we're, we're pretty, we, we as, you know, the human species is pretty prone to just believe and trust the people with the power to try to protect us. And so I think, you know, that's, I'm encouraged that we're starting to see that narrative for what it is and starting to think more creatively. Um, and I hope we can continue that effort. How much do you think police unions, uh, this has come up repeatedly in public conversations, conversations I've had with uh, community members on Twitter, how, how much of a part of the problem are police unions? Well, again, it depends on the state and the department, but in some places, police unions are, are quite a big problem. Um, and I, I think, you know, one thing to keep in mind is that um, 
police unions, oftentimes the leadership is not really that responsive to the, the needs um, of their entire membership. Um, for example, in many of the cities I have been, during collective bargaining agreement negotiations, uh, union leaders will often trade off salary increases for, that would benefit all of their officers for protections for the officers who are accused of misconduct. So for example, they'll say, no, you don't need to give us that 5% raise. Um, instead, just make sure that we can have a week or 48 hours or whatever it is before you question us about um, an officer-involved shooting. And that's a, you know, and of course, city officials bear responsibility for agreeing to that, but it's a very tempting thing when you're trying to balance budgets to agree to something like that. And if you think about that, that sort of provision really is making the entire membership of a police department pay for the bad acts of a few. Um, you know, you're trying to protect them, you're trying to keep the truth from coming out, um, and, and you're trading off something that would benefit everyone. And that's a dynamic that we see in a lot of different ways in a lot of different places when it comes to collective bargaining agreements and unions. Those are documented, and would those, would those have been documented as part of the pattern or practice investigations that you led with the DOJ? Those sorts of agreements? Yeah. Um, they are sometimes documented in the findings reports, but quite often um, they, you can see them in the collective bargaining agreements themselves. Um, and you can, um, when you talk with public officials, they will tell you that um, these were the things that were on the table and these are things that um, were traded during the course of negotiations. If it's, not, it's, not a, it's not a secret. <laughs> it's not a, a piece of the story that I had ever heard before. Um, I just want to say, if you're joining, if you're just joining us, you're with the City Club Friday Forum, and we're talking today with Christy Lopez. She teaches at Georgetown Law, and uh, she's a professor in pra of practice there, and she co-leads Georgetown Law's program on innovative policing. Um, Christy Lopez, what does innovative policing mean right now in America? That's a great question. Um, I think innovative policing really means. Uh, being part of that reimagining of public safety and rethinking the role that um, police officers play in that. I think it means recognizing that perhaps in the future we want police who have a much more narrow scope of what they do. But in my view, at least, we want police or whatever we, you know, even if you want to call them something else, it's not, I'm not particularly concerned about that. But we want to choose people who are um, the most uh, morally and physically courageous, the most the, able to put their um, biases to the side and be objective, the most fair-minded. Um, and we want to pick those people and put them in these positions where they are charged with going out in these really difficult situations and trying to resolve them. And I think if, you know, we're, there's going to be a need for that. Um, and, you know, I understand and agree with the the vision of having communities that, is, as some abolitionists have put it, are so beautiful and healthy that we don't need um, police and we don't need the coercive power of the state. Um, but until we get there, and I'm, I'm completely on board with trying to get there, but until we get there, we need people who wield that power for the state. And I want them to be the very best among us. And frankly, there's only a few of us who can do that. And so I think part of the reason to narrow the scope of policing is so that we don't have to find as many people who fit those very high standards. And we can worry about them just fitting those standards and not having to um, have all the skills uh, that the police right now need to have because they do so such a broad variety of things. So if we, if we, just to summarize or make sure I understand what you're saying, if we reduce the size of the police force and reduce the scope of the job, we're selecting for 
a smaller set of higher qualifications for which we can pay a premium. That's exactly right. And, and, and of course, we have to be very intentional about what it is we're trying to create. And, and I think one way to think about that is um, a way that Sue Rohr and others have emphasized is, is sort of demanding that our police officers be guardians rather than warriors and really um, instill them with that, um, that mentality. And that is definitely something you asked what innovative policing means. That, that's part, I think, of what we're trying to do with the Innovative Policing Project in Georgetown is sort of create, um, a, you know, a, a way of thinking for police officers that um, is, is both sort of requires them to, to think about the way they exercise their discretion um, in a way that is more judicious and more empathetic than um, they might have come to understand is, is, is the appropriate way to exercise their discretion in the past. So that's part of what we're doing there um, through that, through our Police for Tomorrow program and things like active bystandership training, which I'm happy to talk about later. But that sort of approach to policing, I think, will, will put us in a better stead in the future um, for uh, the kind of policing that we want. Talk about those two projects, actually, right now, the, the innovative, uh, the Police for Tomorrow and the, and the active bystandership uh, program. What are, you, what, what are you doing there? Sure. So the Innovative Policing um, pro Program started um, in part because we believe that policing needs to be completely transformed, but we also believe that police insights have a role to play in that. And the Police for Tomorrow Program in particular is, is, tr was, is trying to address one of the overlooked segments of policing, which is young officers, or not, I shouldn't say young new officers, just coming into the field. Um, they come in quite often with very idealistic and wanting to save the world and help their communities. And um, in part because of the cultures of the departments, but in part because of how we've defined policing. They learn that it's very difficult to do what they thought they, you know, they thought policing would be. And so what we try to do through this program, it's an 18-month program. We um, select officers who are still in the academy or just out of the academy. And just as they're hitting the streets and, and realizing it's, it's a much more complicated scenario than they thought, we try to give them a safe space to come and discuss some of the most difficult topics um, from abolition to homelessness and gentrification um, and you know youth brain development and help them understand how to have those conversations and the hope is that they will begin to see where policing fits into all this and begin to ask more critical questions and be comfortable challenging some of the assumptions about policing and, and we also hope that it has an immediate impact on how they police the next day when they go out um, into the field. Are you so seeing that's one that? Of our, we are actually. I mean, I could tell you, we're, we're just starting to do program assessments to try to measure that. Um, but I can tell you stories about, you know, officers who said, yes, we talked about alternatives to arrest at our workshop last night. And today I went out and my partner had put someone in handcuffs for a, you know, driving on a suspended license. And I knew that this was going to ruin this person's life. And I said, you know, I'm taking this person out of handcuffs. We're not arresting this person. And my partner was like, you're going to get in trouble. You're going to be disciplined. And he said, my job is bigger than that. I mean, these really, you know, these crazy stories that you're, you couldn't, you know, you couldn't hope for better students than some of our Police for Tomorrow officers who are really taking what we're telling them to heart. And to me, that's really a, um, it, it tells me that, that um, and I've experienced this my entire career doing this, there's so many police officers who are really good people who are working really hard to do the right thing, and we need to make it easier for them to do that, um, which is, which brings me to the second program we're working on, if it's okay. Yes, um, please which is the active bystandership um, program. Um, you know, this is an idea that I've been really a, pro a promoter of for many years um, when I was investigating the New Orleans Police Department. Um, by that time, I had 
already, um, I, I had reviewed, I don't know, hundreds of use of force reports, and it appeared from those use of force reports um, that oftentimes there was somewhere between one and a dozen people standing around um, not intervening to prevent the misconduct. And then when body-worn camera footage started to come out, it affirmed for me, yes, indeed, there are often many people standing around. Why is that? Um, a, a longtime civil rights advocate in New Orleans named Mary Hal brought to my attention the work of a Holocaust survivor and social psychologist named Irvin Staub. And his work had really explored why is it that people stand by while other people, while other people do terrible things. And he had actually done a lot of research to explore why, what the inhibitors to intervention are and how we can overcome those and actually teach people um, to intervene when they otherwise wouldn't. And, you know, it, all of us would like to think that we would jump in and intervene, uh, you know, anytime we see wrongdoing. But um, if anyone can remember back to the, the schoolyard bully, um, we might recall that perhaps we weren't always as brave as we had hoped that we would have been. Um, and unfortunately, even as adults and even police officers don't always intervene um, when they should because of some of those inhibitors. So what we did in New Orleans is we built in a requirement into the consent decree there that officers be trained on peer intervention. And New Orleans really ran with that and they created what, what they called the EPIC program, Ethical Policing is Courageous. And they actually taught officers, um, you know, to expect that when they tried to intervene, it was going to be harder than they thought it would be and how to overcome those difficulties. And very importantly, they built in things into the culture of the department that would support officers to intervene, which is absolutely critical to this, to this entire idea. So I had been wanting to expand this. And, and unfortunately, a lot of departments, when we would talk to them, would say things like, oh, we already do all that. Our officers know our officers would intervene. Um, but, you know, tragically, um, we saw in the George Floyd case, you know, that they don't. And they had a duty to intervene requirement in Minneapolis, as they do in many places. And you saw, at least from what we understand, one of the officers, you know, tried to intervene, tried to say something, and it didn't work, immediately gave up. That's, that's classic, what we, you would expect. And so it seemed like the right time to try that people might be listening finally and we might be able to get agencies to understand the importance of teaching their officers to intervene and of creating the cultures for officers to intervene and so we started what we're calling the um, able active bystandership for law enforcement and the idea there is to give every law enforcement officer in the united states the opportunity to learn how to intervene and to ensure that every police department and law enforcement agency creates a culture that supports intervention. You mentioned that Minneapolis had a duty to intervene, um, and that was a part of their, was that part of a consent decree that the Minneapolis police were already under, or was that just part of how their, how their contract or, or how, they, how their practice is structured? I believe it was part of the general orders of that department. Um, many departments have that as part of a general a, a rule of the police department. Other um, places have it under state law. Um, and in fact, every circuit, every federal circuit in the country has held that officers have a duty to intervene to prevent um, excessive, another officer from uh, using excessive force. But, you know, as we all know, that you know, all too often officers don't intervene despite those mandates. It brings to mind, though, some of the uh, policies and uh, requirements that consent decrees have put into place in cities such as Ferguson and Cleveland, Ohio, um, and others, and you were involved in, instrumentally in crafting con those consent decrees. Um, you left that work in 2017. Um, what, where do, how far do consent decrees get us, and why aren't they enough? 
So um, I think consent decrees are, are really important and sometimes essential. And, and here in Cleveland, there's a great, it's a great example. Um, the Department of Justice had an MOU, a Memorandum of Understanding with Cleveland back in 2004 to resolve some um, patterns of constitutional violations that uh, the Civil Rights Division found then. Just a year after um, uh, agreeing to the MOU, um, they declared that the um, that the that Cleveland had met all the requirements and, and left. Um, a consent decree is much more than that. A consent decree um, doesn't have an end date like that and has a independent monitor and a federal court to make sure that the requirements of the decree are met. And in addition, um, the the consent decrees, unfortunately, they've become much longer, but that is because we've realized that um, if you don't address everything in the department, you're just plain whack-a-mole. And so they're really, they can be transformative, and I can tell you some stories about how they've been transformative in many places, but notwithstanding how important they can be, um, it, had, it became clear to me over time that they were not sufficient. Um, and one of the reasons they are not sufficient is that policing is not operating in a vacuum. It's operating in this much larger criminal justice system and this much larger society. And if you look at our consent decrees, um, one of the areas in which they've been least successful is in uh, changing racial disparities. And what I mean by that is that, um, for example, oftentimes um, you will see as a consent decree is implemented, uses of force will go down and arrests will go down and citations will go down even as crime um, rates stay the same or fall, right? So you're able to decrease the intrusion of policing and the harm of policing while not making people less safe. But as you see those numbers fall, you will often see, often see the um, disparities, the race disparities remain the same or sometimes even increase. So maybe you went from 100 uses of force to 50 uses of force, but instead of having uh, you know, 90 of those uh, 100 be African-American, you now have 47 of the 50 are African-American. Um, so, and I think that is partly reflective of the fact that policing is existing in this larger, very racialized society and that we need to address those issues more broadly. In, in thinking about that too, I mean, you, you've mentioned the courts, you've mentioned sort of revenue-focused policing, the the speeding tickets and, and traffic citations and things of that sort that generate revenue to support the very police departments that are issuing the citations mm-hmm. um, and to support other, uh, and to backfill where where cities have cut taxes and things of that sort. Yeah. Um, and then alongside all of that are the courts themselves and our prosecutors. Yeah. Um, so that was one of the things that uh, became quite clear to me. I actually got into policing work because I was doing prisons and jails conditions work, and it was quite clear to me that people um, that were in prisons and jails, it wasn't helping anyone for them to be there, and they didn't need to be there. But at this, And so I went upstream a bit to look at policing. And then as I worked on policing, I realized, oh, wait, um, there's a lot. You know, we're, We love to throw police under the bus when anything goes wrong, but a lot of what is going wrong in policing is completely because prosecutors and judges and legislators, um, all lawyers like me, um, have been um, you know, setting up systems that really demand that officers uh, in, you know, arrest people, cite people, uh, stop people, um, and then you know, that creates a lot of in- inherent problems that then the police themselves are forced to face, and the prosecutors and judges and legislators kind of get off scot-free. It's one of the reasons I actually left DOJ was to actually go to a law school where I could talk to future lawyers about our role and our need to own this problem. Did it, does it feel to you that that was something that was missing from your own legal education? 
Oh, absolutely. Um, I think until, you know, at this point, it's probably been about um, five years or so where prosecutors are starting to get some attention. Um, before that, there was just really no attention to the role that prosecutors play in, um, in problematic policing. And I think only just now, within the past literally six months, are we starting to see a little bit more movement on the role that judges play um, and the need for judges to be more proactive um, about uh, problematic policing. We, um, when you and I spoke earlier in the week to prepare for this interview, um, you spoke a lot about non-reformist reforms. And um, and I know that uh, there are people who are listening to this, and they're suddenly I've said that, and they're they're saying, "What what on earth could that mean?" Others <laughs> know exactly what that means. But for people who are digging into this issue and 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 really grappling with the idea of defunding the police uh, for the first time, what does that refer to? What is what does that actually mean? Non-reformist reforms, and what does it sort of stand in opposition to? So non-reformist reforms is an idea that I thought was my brilliant idea, but it turns out many people thought of it many times before I did. But it really spoke to something that I was discovering as I did this work, which was that um, I was, in my view, there is a responsibility and a need to um, try to make changes to policing immediately because we can prevent harm, we can um, save lives, we can save neighborhoods if we make policing better in the here and now. At the same time, as um, you know, over the years, as I had this growing recognition that um, police are acting in this larger um, set of systems, and that we have to actually address all of those things, and this is much bigger than policing, and realizing that part of that means narrowing the scope of policing and, and rethinking um, public safety, um, I didn't want to be part of um, creating reforms that actually amplify policing. You know, uh, things that actually entrench more policing. Um, through the guise of reforming it. And so I started thinking about how we at the Department of Justice, for example, um, could, could negotiate and implement consent decrees in a way that addresses the constitutional violations that are occurring right now, but doesn't undercut efforts to rethink policing more broadly. Um, and uh, upon leaving DOJ and, and having time to reflect on these ideas further, I discovered that there's, this, you know, again, back in the 60s, um, uh, a man named Gerard Horst came up with this idea, or he at least named it, the idea of non-reformist reforms, which are reforms that are, can act in the here and now, but don't work to further entrench the current system. Um, and, and Angela Davis um, and uh, Rachel Herzing and many other, who, the co-founder of um, Critical Resistance, they have taken up this idea as it applies to the criminal justice system and, and, and more recently as it applies to policing to think about ways that um, we might be able to reduce the harm of policing now while not undercutting efforts to um, get at these deeper changes that are deeper changes that are broader than policing. Christy Lopez is our guest at the City Club Friday Forum today. She is a professor from practice at the Georgetown University Law Center, where she also runs the Innovative Policing Project. If you have questions for Christy Lopez, uh, please text them to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. You can also tweet them at the City Club, and we'll work them in. I'm Dan Malthrop, CEO of the City Club. And uh, Christy, I wanted to get to some um, some questions from the audience. Here. One of our first is has to do with militarization and the federal government um, and the federal government's role. To what extent has militarization of police forces, which has been supported by the federal government, um, contributed to the problems that you're seeking to address? 
So I think militarization has been a um, terrible problem, and the federal government has certainly contributed to that in, in many ways. Um, there's been this ironic um, dual thing happening in policing. On the one hand, we were trying to focus police on um, more preventative policing and what we were calling community policing, just trying to make communities safer and be more involved in the fabric of the community, working with communities um, to address the issues they saw. And at the same time, um, we, we declared this war on drugs and uh, declared that police would be the ones to go out there and be the warriors in this war on drugs. And um, that presented a lot of options, a lot of opportunities to a lot of people to really um, uh, make policing much more military-like. One of the programs at the federal government level was, is the 1033 program where we actually give for free um, military equipment ranging from MRAPs to bayonets to local law enforcement. And one of the problems with that program, um, in addition to the fact that local law enforcement doesn't need MRAPs or bayonets, in, in my view at least, and an MRAP is that is, um, local departments, I'm sorry, an MRAP, uh, uh, what does it stand for? I, I believe it's, uh, it's, a, it's, it's, it's an armored a, vehicle. It's an armored vehicle that they use, yeah. A mine resistant yes, I don't remember what the acronym stands for. Yeah. I think MR stands for mine resistant. Yeah. Which is something Mine that, resistant, it does, that but no I can't remember what the P stands needs. for. But in any event, we use them in wars, um, and we don't need to be using them in our neighborhoods um, where there are no mines. Um, but the idea was not only are, are, um, were communities asking for these things or being given these things for free, um, but they were told that if they didn't use this equipment, then they wouldn't be eligible to receive equipment in the future. So there was a real, there were some real perverse incentives going around. We actually tried to fix that a bit in the Obama administration to change a lot of the rules and put more oversight. And then when uh, Jeff Sessions came in as Attorney General under Trump, they rolled all that back. But I want to be clear that, it, like, and, and there's other, you know, that that sort of approach has been supported at the federal level far too much. But I want to be clear that it's not. A lot of this is sort of inherent to policing. This, I, or not inherent to policing, but I mean, it doesn't have to be part of policing, but it has been part of policing for a very long time. Everything from the use of SWAT teams, um, the use of SWAT teams to execute search warrants has gone up exponentially in the past many years. Um, we use that sort of force for, for things that we never would have used that in the, in the past. Even things like the way police outfit themselves. Um, I, you know, the use of, uh, the fact that we still use police canines to attack people, including for low-level offenses, is a pretty barbaric practice that we don't even really question. And even that practice um, is something that contributes to that very sort of militaristic, um, antagonistic, uh, you know, formulation of policing. Here's another question. Um asking, uh, can you provide an overview of what was done in Camden, New Jersey, which seems to be an effective defunding or restructuring model? Yeah, so I would definitely not call um, Camden a defunding model. Um, they actually probably spend more on policing now than they did before. Um, but what they did there, it, it's definitely an example of how you can change policing for the better. Um, but it's also an example of how we need to change more than policing if we're really going to address our public safety needs. Um, you know, in, in Camden, what Scott Thompson, who's, who's a, a good friend and a really um, visionary chief, he went into Camden and he essentially, you know, with the help of his legislature, busted the union. And that allowed him to hire the people he wanted to hire. Everyone had to reapply for their job, take psych tests they had never had to take before. And with that, with those individuals and with an entirely new approach to policing and more funding actually for policing, he was able to change the approach to how they police. 
um, in a way that has made a difference in people's lives. People are feel more comfortable. Crime has gone down exponentially in Camden. People feel more comfortable sitting on their porch steps and letting their kids run around outside than they did before. That's a, that's a real benefit. Um, but you know, the high school graduation rate hasn't increased in Camden. Um, a lot of other indicators of what we really want to see in safe and healthy communities have not changed. And that's not a fault of the Camden police. It's just a recognition that police can't solve all of the problems that our communities have. This question, uh, the misconceptions, there are many misconceptions around the term defund the police. How, what kind of thoughts do you have about a different name for it? So, you know, I, I didn't come up with the name, um, but I'm not, I have to say I'm not as bothered by it as a lot of people seem to be. And I, and I think there are three reasons for that. Um, the first is, you know, one of the complaints about the, the slogan defund the police seems to be that it gives fodder to the right or people who don't like um, the idea of police reform. And, it, you know, maybe it even hands the election over to Donald Trump. Um, and, I, and I just don't buy that. I think that no matter what term you would have come up with, you know, Trump was going to come out on Twitter with law and order in all caps. And people were going to say, you're trying to, you know, make us all unsafe. Like that rhetoric was going to happen no matter what slogan you chose. And I think, you know, the fact, the reaction to the Black Lives Matter slogan tells us that. That is a brilliant slogan that could not be, if you really stop and think about it, more innocuous. Black Lives Matter. What is, what is controversial about that? And yet, it has become an absolute flashpoint. And so to me, that really underscores that it's about the underlying attitudes, not the specific words that were chosen. The other, the other complaint I've heard about defund the police as a slogan is that it requires an explanation. And you hear people say, you know, anytime you're explaining your slogan, you're losing. I think anytime you're not explaining your slogan, you're oversimplifying. And I actually, I don't have a problem with the fact that this is a slogan that requires some conversation. I actually think that's one of the benefits of it, that you have to have a conversation about what it means. And then finally, what I like about the slogan um, is that it really does require you to question your assumptions about public safety and to question, wait, is $100 billion, $100 billion a year on policing the best way to be spending our money and keeping ourselves safe? There, that was, you know, you can talk about police reform for a very long time without ever getting to the conversation, that part of the conversation. And it's a part of the conversation that was long overdue. And so I, you know, I understand the concerns and to some extent I share them, but I, I guess I just am not sure I see a better alternative. Um, and in any, in any event, that's the slogan we have. And I think we should just move forward and address the ideas that underlie it. Well, I think you're right that it is, it is it's, it's a conversation starter for sure. Right. It does provoke you to think and to question and to ask. And then and then there there. And here we are having the conversation. Right. Um, it does bring to mind exactly. this this bigger question, too, which is if you um, if you were to design, if the police force didn't exist, if you were designing a new community and you were starting from scratch, um, which of the things that police currently do would you actually what kind of a police force would you create if you had to start from scratch and would you ask them to address homelessness and uh as well everything from homelessness to like traffic yeah no i think the, i think part of the reason i think the answer to that is no we wouldn't ask them to do a lot of the things that we're asking them to do and part of the reason that we have is that we need a, 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 some sort of a response to problems that is 24 seven. 
And I think we just need to get more nuanced and specialized about what that response is and recognize that we don't need the same individuals working for the same department to be responding to each of those different things. Just as we have ambulances respond to some incidents and police officers respond to other incidents, we can further diversify and have different types of people working 24-7 to respond to different incidents. That said, in my view at least, we will always need people who have the skills of the people that we currently call police um, to respond. And, and, and I hope actually that we can, as I was saying earlier, um, you know, really pick the best of the best to do those, or at least the best of those types of skills to do those things. The people who really we need to respond to people like you know, active shooters. To We need to protect people who are trying to peacefully protest, protect them in a way that is respectful and safe, right, um, from counter-protesters who may be armed and, and bent, you know, on harm. You know, when you hear a, a, a scream in, outside your um, window in the alley at 3 o'clock in the morning, you want someone to call, and of course that person's not going to be a social worker, but neither should it be someone that you're afraid to call because you don't know you know, how they're, if they're going to respond fairly um, and judiciously to the person that, that might be screaming for help uh, in, the, in the back. So I think, you know, we have um, a right um, to a public policing force that is fair and effective. Um, and we should really be thinking about the kinds of attributes and the kind of culture that will um, ensure that we have the very best people in that role. Here's a few questions about um, body cam footage. Is collective bargaining part of why body cam and dash cam footage isn't routinely audited in most police departments? And how do we get external audits to become routine? Internal investigations don't seem to be adequate, especially in communities with consent decrees. Yeah, so I think that's a really good question. Body camera footage, I know um, some people are very against body cameras because uh, on both sides of the issue, uh, or both sides of the political spectrum um, because they believe that they've actually become a tool for surveillance and they haven't resulted in much accountability. I couldn't disagree with the accountability piece more. I've absolutely seen a dramatic change in um, accountability, both internal and external, um, with the advent of body cameras. But I think it's an absolutely uh, fair and, and, and uh, fair critique and critical that we look at the fact that um, right now, through unions, uh, union agreements, and sometimes uh, legislative agreements, uh, we're making it too difficult for the public to have access to that footage. Now, there are some really important privacy concerns to keep in mind. Um, a, a lot of times, families don't want the footage of their loved one being abused or even killed to be out in the public, and that's something we need to pay attention to, in, in my view. Body camera footage often catches people on the worst day of their lives, and you don't want that you know, becoming a viral video. Um, police officers have legitimate privacy concerns about body cameras as well. So I don't. I think it's it's not simple as simple as some people would think. But I I absolutely agree that they are, we are in danger of having a tool that is only used for evidence collection and is not used for accountability. And I think that would be a real disservice and a real a missed opportunity and completely inconsistent with where policing needs to go if we were to allow that to happen. Regarding prosecutors, how much of law school is spent on understanding the role of indictment procedures? Locally, we know that grand juries don't often have hands-on access to much direct evidence. The indictment process is a systemic structure that seems to collude with stacking of charges, which results in plea bargains, many of which are often fictional, which systemically is a tool of mass incarceration. How do communities advocate for an implementation of real change when the current system is so entrenched? That's a great question about um, that really highlights the role of prosecutors and highlights the um, 
the need for us to have a better understanding of how that um, implicates the system. Um, in the, the, the answer to the question of how much time is spent on that in law school is, is very little and, and not enough. Um, Georgetown, where I teach, is one of the very few law schools to require that uh, students take criminal procedure, which does get at these issues. And, and I teach that course, and you might, as you might imagine, I spend a lot of time talking about um, uh, the systemic features of these problems. Um, and at Georgetown, we also have a very strong clinical program that allows students, to, as law students, to actually go in and defend people and see how the process actually works. And many, you know, um, where Georgetown is actually known for its clinical program, but many schools, do, law schools, do have those clinical programs, but they don't always put the emphasis on this that I think we should be having. And honestly, I think we should be learning these things in high school. I think this is part of just good citizenship to understand not only, how, you know, when we learn government in high school, you know, it is nice that we know the three branches of government and that we have a bicameral Congress, but we should also know how our local prosecutors are acting and how our public defenders are acting and what our judges do. That's going to have a much more direct impact, and it's really how democracy plays out every day. The, um, the plea bargaining system, which isn't really a system, it's a very informal sort of arrangement, I guess, among, um, among criminal defense lawyers, prosecutors, and judges, um, it's not implement—it doesn't work the same— it works differently in every single courtroom in across America, and um, there are some places where there's a, a an agreement that you can you know be arrested for one thing and plead out to jaywalking, and then there's and then there are other judges who insist that that pleas actually rep, be represented represented by facts, or supported by facts, um, yeah. and the and the ways in which charges are brought though I mean can you just comment a little bit more on the way charges are brought and the and the way the ways that prosecutors and police work together to bring those charges which are often considered some would char some would say are overcharged or overcharged defendants in the hopes of getting a simple guilty plea on something else yeah um so there is definitely a dynamic has built up in many um, jurisdictions and maybe every almost every jurisdiction, although some prosecutors are now pushing back on this a bit, of um, overcharging in order. They, it's seen as a form of negotiation, right? You come in with your strongest bid, and, and for prosecutors, like, you know, we can put on all sorts of charges, um, and then we're going to get a better um, settlement. Now, I don't want to. I think prosecutors are, are, they're trying, they, most prosecutors, I think, know that their goal is justice, not a conviction and, and that sort of thing. But I think, I do think that the, um, you know, we've normalized a lot of pretty extreme um, charging decisions and sentencing decisions. And I, I think the prosecutors sometimes do see it um, as sort of a game that they're winning, even though they don't mean to. I, I think, for example, the, the, the serial series that, that um, focused on uh, right there in Cleveland in the court system there was actually quite good at exploring um, how people can, you know, fall into this sort of game of this and it's it, forgetting that it's people's lives. Now, police officers absolutely play a role in that and prosecutors sometimes um, will really, uh, you know, inspire the ire of police departments if they start to not charge certain, certain things. At the same time, you know, I, for example, some of our Police for Tomorrow fellows, they have gone to talk to prosecutors to say, you know what, those three kids I arrested last night for shoplifting at the CVS, you don't really need, I had to, you know, we, they didn't qualify for the diversion program, but don't prosecute them on my account. I'm um, just almost giving the prosecutor permission to say, like, you know what, I don't think, it, you know, as an officer who's out there every day, I don't see a public safety need for these kids to get criminal just, criminally justice involved. So I think 
that sort of um, that sort of communication goes both ways, and we need to be um, as communities. We need to be inserting ourselves into that and making sure people really understand, and, and prosecutors and police officers really understand um, the harm that's that's happening because of some of these decisions. As I said earlier, we're talking with Christy Lopez of Georgetown Law uh, about defunding the police and what it actually might mean in practice. It's a very straightforward question for you here, Christy. What can I as an involved citizen do to help make positive changes such as innovative policing in my community? Oh, that is such a great question. Um, you know, one of the one of the things is uh, to educate yourself about your um, your community budget, your local budget. What what is money being spent on and why? Um, to educate yourself on, um, to, to think about what is it that you need and that you think your community needs um, for public safety. Um, part of that might be less crime, but part of that is probably also um, better housing and better education and making sure people have access to medical care and mental health care. What's going on in those? Um, the great thing about this is that um, when we start to reimagine public safety, we realize that it's much bigger than we thought. Um, so an after-school program is public safety. Um, and much more public safety than another police officer. So if that's what you want to do, if you want to help start an after-school program, um, you're you're doing something that's that's going to be part of innovative policing or at least innovative public safety. Um, that's so important. Do you think it's incumbent though on concerned citizens to reach out to? I mean, Cuyahoga County, where we're sitting right now, it's not just Cleveland. Cleveland's one of 59 municipalities in Cuyahoga County, mm -hmm. um, with uh, 59 police. Actually, I don't know that there are 59 police departments. There are fewer than 59 police departments, I'm sure, um, and uh, and a multitude of court systems and so forth. Should should citizens who are concerned about this be reaching out to their city council members, their local city council members, their mayors, I, in their in their own municipality, and asking what kinds of questions would they ask? What kinds of information would be most helpful to catalyze the conversation? Yeah, so they should be reaching out not only to their municipal um, leadership, but also their county leadership and their state leadership. Um, and I, I, I wrote a document called um, Changing the Law to Change Policing, along with a bunch of other people. Um, and we have items at every level that you can look at and ask questions about. But generally speaking, that's why I started with the budget question, because a lot of this is like, where are we putting our dollars? Um, there's such a thing as the moral budget, right? Um, and, and it really signals a lot. And, and, and and impacts a lot where things actually go. The other big issue is is just data and transparency. Do you you know no in no state do we actually um, require that departments tell us how many times they've deployed SWAT teams or how? Um, in Maryland, they had a little a law for a little while after SWAT team um, shot the dogs of a mayor of a town, um, but that law was allowed to sunset. Um, and so you know, or, or canines, for example. Um, again, what I think to be a barbaric practice, and people tell you, oh, they're used, they protect us from, from murder suspects, really? When was the last time that your dog was set on a murder suspect and, and really saved someone's life in that way? Or anyway, um, you know, just data on large things and small things about what your police department is actually doing. Um, I think that we should be demanding answers to those questions. There are, here's another question for you. There are arguments surrounding the fact that often police officers are not actually members of the communities they police. People argue that this leads to a lack of understanding of the culture of the community they serve, in addition to the community missing a connection with the officers who police them. How do you see this? I think, again, that's another complicated issue. Absolutely, you must have officers who love the community that they work for. They really have to have an affinity and, and, and want to protect um, that community. 
Um, now, unfortunately, that doesn't always mean that sort of residency requirements can take care of that. For example, Chicago PD has a residency requirement, and there's a lot of officers who don't, unfortunately, there who don't exhibit a lot of concern and care for their communities. And there are other police departments I've been in that don't have residency requirements. Okay, we've uh, we're having trouble connecting with Christy right now. Um, we're going to um, we're going to try and get get a get her back. Uh, I'm Dan Malthrop. You're with the City Club Friday Forum, and uh, our guest today is Christy Lopez. She is with Georgetown Law, and she runs the Center for Innovative Policing there. You can text a question to 330-541-5794, and you can also tweet your question at the City Club. We've got time for a few more as soon as we've got her back. Christy, you dropped out just in the middle of your response to that last question. I want to invite you to pick that up. All right. Am I back now? You are back. Okay. I apologize for that. I don't know what happened. Um, I was saying that... Um, that residency requirements are often the way that people try to get the connection between um, officers and their communities and that connection I absolutely agree is is necessary you need to have officers who love their communities um, and want to serve them but as I saw in places like Chicago um, the, where they have a residence requirement it's certainly no guarantee that just because officers live in that community that they're going to be connected to and care about that community and in other communities I've been not that I mean, many Chicago officers do care about their communities but many didn't despite the fact that they lived in, in the city in other places I've been, um, officers, there wasn't a residency requirement, and officers really did, they nonetheless had a connection to the community. So I think you just need to find the ways to um, ensure the officers care about the city, they want to serve this city, um, regardless of whether they are living within its city limits. It sounds like it comes back to that point you made earlier about about if we can if we can if we reduce the size of the police force then we can be more selective about who becomes who become police officers and we can select for that kind of empathy. Yeah, exactly. And what we've been doing to date is mostly screening out officers with, with psychological problems, for example. And what would be wonderful and ideal is if we could screen in officers who are exceptionally qualified in these different areas, exceptionally objective, ex with exceptional moral courage, exceptional empathy. Um, that's the kind of thing that could really begin to create um, policing that we um, all need. Another question, I, I have heard that there are around 19,000 different police departments inside the United States, each with their own rules and policies. Wouldn't it make sense to have some comprehensive rules and policies across the nation? Yeah, it would. Um, so it, it is difficult. Um, we, we do have the one set of rules are the, are the Constitution and the Fourth Wait, Amendment. We, we do have the Constitution, yeah. We do have that still. Last time I checked. Um, and the Fourth Amendment still does apply. But unfortunately, and this is where more lawyers uh, get the blame here, our Supreme Court um, and many of the federal courts have not done a very good job, in my view, of recognizing um, the import of having strong constitutional rules. Um, but, every, but it is very difficult um, when you have many different standards. At the same time, there's a lot of opportunity um, that, that that level, you know, there's lots of different opportunity for creativity. We, one thing to keep in mind is that although we have 18,000, 18, I think, um, law enforcement agencies, we only have 50 states, and a lot of the rules for policing can be set at the state level. And so you can at least, you know, have um, 50 instead of 18,000 sets of rules for people. Um, and I think that's really where a lot of the focus on setting the rules for policing should be is at the state level. Uh, how the, this question is a, around police unions, which we spoke about earlier. But assuming we can't get rid of unions, how can we bring the police unions on board? These changes seem um, 
seem ultimately beneficial to the police? Yeah, that another great question. Um, I think that I am seeing some, I have seen, for example, again, not to, uh, you know, some of our Police for Tomorrow fellows, they have run for membership, um, for leadership in their union because they're, they want to change how unions think. And I think if we can, again, change the way that police think about unions, um, we can encourage, um, we might see unions that are um, actually just trying to make sure that officers don't get taken advantage of by management and have decent salaries and wages, you know, a function that I think that um, we, we, we could agree are, is, a is a good function for unions. Um, but I think that we have to sort of confront, for one thing, um, the fact that many police unions actually arose in response to um, hostility to black officers coming onto the force. Um, and that the vestiges of that you can still see in a lot of unions. You will often see that even in police forces that are substantially minority or even majority minority, the union leadership will still be all or mostly white. Um, and I think that that uh, points to In Cleveland, to a, there, are, there are two organizations. There's the Black Shield, and then there's the Cleveland Police Patrolmen's Association. Yeah, that and, and in New Orleans, it's the same way. There are two unions, um, and one of them was explicitly formed to oppose the fact that the city decided to hire black officers. So, you know, I, I, you can't, it's, this is not, the problem with unions is not simply or only an issue of race, but I do think that we can't really address the issues with unions unless we acknowledge that history and, and, and in some places that very much living history in unions um, and try to make them actually serve all of their members um, rather than um, some of the few who are favored and often quite problematic. Coming back to this point of empathy, how do you measure and hire for it? That, another great question. So there are a number of different uh, psychological tests. Um, I heard someone the other that, that we use for policing, and they do measure things like your level of empathy, your level of integrity, your level of moral courage. They try to measure those things. Not perfectly, but they try to get at it. The problem is, and I heard someone um, describe it the other day as um, the people who conduct these tests and decide who gets in, you, 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 they're more like, um, you know, food inspectors. They're just trying to get rid of the bad fruit. They're not trying to get, you know, we need, we need, we need to be at a place where we can be more like fine chefs who are going to the farmer's market and getting the very best to become, right, the police officers. And, and so it's not so much that we don't have an idea of who might be especially good. It's just that with, um, you know, so many police officers and so many law enforcement agencies doing so much, you don't have the luxury of just choosing the, the few that are the very best. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of people who are fine people, but maybe not the best people to be police officers, um, get become police officers nonetheless. Okay, Christy, last thing very quickly, three things that police departments can implement right away. Oh, my goodness. Um, Active bystandership training, absolutely, it's a, it's a no-brainer. It's We and other people are offering it for free to people and support that. That can make a difference tomorrow, and actually it is a non-reformist reform because it helps change that culture of policing. Um, I think another thing is to um, really work on your recruiting and make sure that your standards are high and make sure they're what, you, what they should be. And then the third is to look at the scope of your policing and um, begin right now to uh, determine whether you're really doing, whether the things you're doing you really need to be doing. Christy Lopez is professor from practice at Georgetown University Law Center. Christy, thank you so much for your work and for sharing it with us today. Thank you so much for having me. I enjoyed it. It's been great Take having care. you. I want to thank our listeners as well for joining us for our forum today with Christy Lopez. And we're going to continue to present our forums uh, either on virtual platforms or here from the IdeaStream studios. 
On Friday, July 24th, we will hear from Capricia Marshall, former chief of protocol of the United States and author of the new book, Protocol, The Power of Diplomacy and How to Make It Work for You. We'll be talking about the importance of international cooperation and successful diplomacy during the pandemic. If you have other ideas about topics or speakers we should feature while we're continuing to uh, quarantine and keep our social distance, we're at cityclub.org. Please get in touch. I'm Dan Malthrop. Stay strong. Stay healthy. Wash your hands. Keep your distance. Wear a mask, please. And stay close in your hearts if you can't be close in person. Our forum is now adjourned. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC, the Chautauqua Institution, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.